Mark My Words shares Mark Homer's contrarian views on investing, business, finance, economics, and all things money. Mark interviews the world's most successful business, finance, and money experts, as well as imparting his knowledge in a factual, direct, and no-nonsense manner. Welcome to Mark My Words, and here is your host, Mark Homer. Hi, this is Mark Homer for Mark My Words. It's a slightly different theme for my podcast today. I'm joined by my business partner, Rob Moore, and we're going to talk about the biggest mistakes which we made in business in the early days and onwards. So, on with the episode, and thanks for listening. Hi, if you're following us on the Rob Moore page and on the Progressive Property Community feed, you are live, we are live. So, in this live video, a rare opportunity to see Mark and I together. For some reason, everyone seems to love it when we share our mistakes in property and business. And believe you me, Mark and I have made a few. Basically, Mark and I are going to talk for the next 30 minutes or so on all the mistakes we made in business and what we've learned from them so you don't have to make them because this seems to be popular. So, Mark, in the early days, you bought off-plan property. Then you bought overseas property. You bought overseas and off-plan property. And then you bought new build property. And you don't do that anymore. So why were they not the best kind of deals and why, why were they mistakes? Well, generally with overseas property, you don't know the area. The legal system's completely different. You've got to relearn everything. You make a lot of assumptions, which are usually wrong. If you're in some countries, the money often disappears. You know, I know Bulgaria where I invested or some other places in Eastern Europe, South America. The legal system is, is, is quite weak and, yeah. and the money will just disappear. Mm. You know, there's a lot of other issues. Um, new build, sometimes if you get a discount, it can be okay. But a lot of the time, new build properties are, they as soon as you buy them, they drop by 10 to 15%. Yeah. And, you know, there, there are other issues. So often, you know, not, not as good a, an investment. And the yields are, are usually lower. Yeah. Probably one of the properties for me that's gone up the very least that I bought was one that I wanted to live in that was all swanked up inside. And um, I, I, it, I think I bought that 10 years ago, still own it. It's probably not now any more valuable than when I bought it. And of course, got it because you could get really small deposit. And so you emotionally go, oh, I look at that beautiful apartment. I'm going to own that. I could live in that one day. That's kind of a bad thing, isn't it? Buying on your emotion when it comes to assets. I think doing most, you know, engaging in business based on emotions <laughs> is, is usually bad all round. Yeah you want to use your, your rational mind and, and sort of think about something yeah. before you actually do it. But yeah, people love to go to dinner parties and talk about this beautiful property that yeah. they've just bought. That hasn't gone up in uh, 932 years. Yeah, and you know, it, it makes good conversation, but doesn't necessarily help your, your bank balance or your, yeah. your balance sheet. So yeah. um, I, I think it's much more important to buy stuff that, that works rather yeah. than stuff that's, that's pretty. Well, it's funny that because I'm not saying necessarily that the ugliest things make the most amount of money. But if you look at Rolexes, and if you look at Pateks, and if you look at some of the classic cars and the older Ferraris, it's not like the best looking, most popular one equals the one that's gone up the most. Often, it's the most nondescript one, the one that kind of seems to be hidden that seems to go up the most. Would you agree with that? Very, very true, yeah. It's the stuff that's hidden in plain sight, yeah. you know, because everybody else isn't on it. Yeah. And if everybody else isn't on it, often it might be- Undervalued. Yeah, undervalued and, and cheap. and will then increase in value, you know, when people become aware of it and yeah. then, then get onto it. So, uh, yeah, any asset class that's unloved like that or, 
you know, any type of investment that's unloved is usually better. Where yeah. there's muck, there's money. Yeah. And, um, you know, you, you can protect the downside by buying cheap, can't mm. you? Yeah. So you said something which I think is one of my biggest lessons in business. You said when we were talking about emotions. Now, a conversation we've had a lot is learning to manage your emotions yeah. and how when you can't manage them, it's bad for business. Yeah. And when you can manage them, it's good. So what have you learned about your emotions? Maybe controlling anger or maybe not that kind of thing. Yeah, well, uh, if you don't control anger with other people, you'll get very little out of them and um, you'll, you'll, they'll work against you and you, you won't create a good, a good deal or a good environment. And generally, you're just sort of running out your own, emo- your own emotions yeah. and you know, you're, you're getting the benefit from, from that short-term benefit because yeah. afterwards you probably feel terrible mm. but uh, the reality is that it probably takes you further away from your goal because yeah. it, it puts the other person's back up and and makes them less likely to want to uh, do what you want yeah but um, what about when you know a staff really screws you over or a customer outs you on social media makes an unfair complaint you know when the emotion's there how do you how have you learned to manage it and not let the beast come out well, i think when uh, <laughs> when it, it depends what it is but it, it, it can be quite good just to go for a walk or to go and talk to somebody else before you react. Yeah, have you go to person time. to rant. Yeah. yeah, put time between you and the thing so that you calm down. Maybe write an email out to this person, put all your anger in there, but then just delete don't it. Don't press it. Don't, press, yeah. don't put their name at the top. Don't yeah. send it and delete it. Yeah. And um, yeah, anything that's kind of cathartic for like that, maybe, maybe write out, you know, the issues that you're having, get it all out of your head, kick a ball, exercise, um, yeah. anything like that, but just just don't sort of unleash on the person. Yeah, I, I can normally tell, because I was there myself, people who've just started in business who are, you know, I say this in the nice possible way, but maybe they're a bit naive, and they, they just chuck their emotions everywhere, blurting on social media, arguing with their customers, you know, t- treating their staff emotionally. Because by the way, sometimes you can be over-emotionally good and it'd be bad. You know, because if, like, we had an ex-boss, who was like, once he'd had a coffee and he was in a good mood, he was like the best guy to work for ever. But then, of course, when he was having his crash or there was yeah. no money in his bank, that would be our fault and he'd come and dump it straight on us. So often a consistent boss, even if they're not that excitable, perhaps, is better than a kind of emotional boss. Um, so I, that, this is something I've really had to learn because I, I, I am in my life, all my life, I've kind of been like um, not very good with conflict. And so what's happened is... I've taken things in and in and in and avoided the conflict and it goes in and in and in and in. And then it stores so much up that you have to have a release. And it was normally kicking something, smashing something, smashing one of my pieces of work, kicking something in that, you know, because it had built up so much. Because and, and, you know, I, I've since realised in business, they call us, those kind of people, passive aggressives. And what you don't want to do is that to happen in your business. So I think some things to manage your emotions are, number one is have an outlet, like Mark said. So we often have chats, don't we? And we close the door and we'll be a bit like, but it saves us doing it in front of staff, doing it in front of customers, etc. So it's good to have someone you trust that you can have an outlet. I've also found that when you see it from the other person's side, like if you've got kids you know, and you've got customers, it's the same thing. People don't do anything that seems against you, against you. They do it because they're not happy with the situation. They're not doing it to spite you or, or whatever, even if it's a complaint about you. They're doing it because from their point of view, you know, something isn't right. So if you honour that you can and see it from their side, what you find is that can kind of remove your emotions away from it. I remember we... Uh, 
back in the day when we had about four guys leave on the same day. So a, a mistake Mark and I made, and it was mostly me, to be honest, when we started was we'd hire people just like us. So we were hiring entrepreneurs as well. And, you know, like if they weren't a vision of me or Mark, if they weren't mini me's, we kind of didn't really relate to them. Because if you're hiring everyone who's like you, then there's no one like Mark. If you're hiring everyone who's good at strategy, then there's a load of ideas and there's no implementation. If you're hiring a load of granular people who are doing all the technical stuff, well, there's no vision, there's no ideas, there's no sales, there's no marketing. And at one point, there was like seven or eight people in Progressive, and they were all just crazy, mouthy entrepreneurs like me. And it was like, whoa, this is a bit like, um, this is a, bit like a zoo. Uh, and do you remember when we decided after seeing James Kahn and he said to, that we need more systems, and we told the staff that they were all going to write their systems documents. And we went back going, we're so excited because James Kahn has told us this and this is great for our business. And you're going to write your systems, everyone. How did that go down? Well, like a shitstorm. <laughs> uh, yeah, we had two or three really angry people. One walked out that afternoon. We ended up with a, a letter from a, a solicitor, you, you know, HR solicitor. And, uh, you know, we, we um, nearly ended up in an employment tribunal. Yeah. And, and, and the reason for that was I had this really stupid idea that we could incentivize them if they did it with a reward and then we'd fine them if they didn't do it. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember how your mum reacted to oh, that? Oh, yeah. What was it? Blackmail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the, uh, yeah, so, yeah, it doesn't work, does it? You've got to incentivize staff in, in other ways. Yeah. And you, you know, ways to serve up. them. Ways to serve them, ways that are going to make them want to do it rather yeah. than sort of them feel like you're just pushing something on them for yourself yes. and for the company's purpose. Yeah, yeah. I, I think a lot of entrepreneurs, myself included, have this sort of naive delusion when you start that people work for you. Because, you know, when you set up your own business, you do it for freedom, you do it for autonomy, you do it for choice, you do it because you don't want to work for anyone else, you do it because you want to do your own thing, you've got your passion. And then when you hire your first few people, like, well, you work for me. You can never use that card. If you use the you work for me card, then basically they'll say, fine, I'll work for you. And one day I'll leave and tell you to do one. So people don't work for you. They work for themselves. They work to pay off their own mortgage. They work to earn their weekends. They work because they want to do something that they love. They work for progression. They work for being made to feel important. And I think when I twig that they don't work for me, they work for themselves. And if I can find out what it is that they're working for, progression, importance, you know, autonomy, all that kind of stuff, and I understand them. And then I could give them that. Ironically, ultimately, they become better working for me. But I don't want anyone to feel that they work for me. I want people to feel like they love what they do and they come into a place where they feel like they're treated like an adult and they've got autonomy and progression. So, you know, you have to let go to grow. And I think, did you find, Mark, in the early days in business, you found it hard to let go? You know, you wanted to do everything yourself. You wanted everyone, everything you perfect. You don't understand scale. You don't understand how to leverage other people, how, you know, there are only so many hours in a day to get X amount done. So you have to have a series of other people working on the things and you need to be able to manage them or, you know, be able to oversee what they're doing. And that's the key to business, creating a hierarchy, creating structure and delegating work down, down the chain. But yeah. when you start, you just think, I'm going to do it all because I know what to do and I'm yeah. the entrepreneur. And would you say it's been hard for you to let go of control? Yeah, of course it has. And why? For sure. Because I always feel like, you know, I could do it better or I could make a bit more money or, you know, I could um, save, save some money, you know, going out the door if, you know, I'm controlling it. Or maybe you have quality control. Yeah. You know, like you wouldn't let someone do your Facebook post because you want them, wouldn't want them to do the wrong stuff. No. You know, also, business is a big trust thing, isn't it? 
certainly is. I mean, until you get the right staff, you know, you could be putting misinformation out. They could be writing articles on your behalf that aren't good. Yeah. You know, you, you need to put a, a lot of work into making sure that they're, they're the right thing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Have we ever made any mistakes when staff have left? Well, definitely. I mean, That's the first a rhetorical one, question. The first one was with the, uh, you know, the, the um, incentivizing you know, basically people. carrot and stick, which they saw straight through. In yeah, about five fining seconds. them. You know, yeah. if they didn't do their systems document, uh, <laughs> one of them left. Yeah. Uh, that was a big mistake. We got angry. Uh, that's why, probably, yeah. why she left. Yeah, I mean, there have been plenty of others that have have sort of left, and you know, we've probably not patched things up quick enough. Yeah. Or you know, maybe they've we've not been clear enough. Maybe we've not set them objectives quick enough, and they've decided to leave. Yeah. You know, or, or money or commissions or whatever. We haven't been clear about you know what what they're going to get. Yeah. I certainly think we've been guilty of all those things. Yeah. And just expecting people to sort of manage themselves. Yeah. Without actually training them properly when they come in. Yeah. And giving them a, a chance to, to prove themselves. Yeah. I think if there's if I could add to that some things I've learned recruiting over the years, and of course we're not sitting here saying hey we're perfect. We've got 75 people issue working in the offices of our businesses in this building that we're sat in, and 100 plus consultants and outsourcers, etc. And I feel like I'm learning every day. And that's one of the reasons I love business. I think if you feel like in business, you don't need to learn anymore because you know your industry better than anyone else. I think that's the day where it starts to go wrong. And I think certainly something I want to do is learn all the time. So I think that you should never take leaving personally. Number one, you should do your absolute best when someone leaves to make it a smooth process. You, should, you know, like you watch all the American films and they're like, you're fired. It's, that's not the real world. And if you do that, <laughs> you're in a tribunal and it's all glorified all this. You know, you're fired. If you don't do this, you're fired. But in reality, a lot of people may have left or we've had to ask to leave because we didn't onboard them well enough. We said, there's your desk, there's your computer. Now get on with it. Don't bring me problems, bring me solutions. You know I mean? What a naive way to bring someone into the company, into the culture. I've certainly, as there's quite a few PAs around this city will attest to, someone started, I've said hello, and then I've literally said, there's my life, go fix it. And I probably haven't drip fed them uh, work to do. We give people now two weeks where they're onboarding, where then we are not allowed to give them any work. And you were quite keen to give our new FD some work quite quickly, weren't you? Like I would be with a PA, but we've, they've got to go around all the departments. They've got, to get, they've got to know the culture, the values. They've got to shadow other people. They've got to be able to observe. And then when after a period of time when we think, okay, they've got enough knowledge now, then they can be given some jobs, but they start top line. You know, we don't, don't, go, don't give them a fat run if they're the FD straight away, for example. With me and the PA, don't give them too much personal stuff before they've got a handle on the business stuff. So I think if you're responsible for every hire and if everyone who leaves, you say, what could you have done better? I think that's important. We've got a bit official sometimes, haven't we? Because here's the thing with hiring. What you don't want to do is make a mistake where you could be in a tribunal because you do something wrong. But if you pull someone in and say, this is a performance review meeting, it is 7.22 p.m., we have a witness. We did it with this person who left, didn't we? I think it was the officialdom yeah. as well as the emotion because we'd never done an official meeting like that. And all of it, and by the way, her ex-husband was a solicitor, wasn't he? So that was never going to go down well. So uh, you've got to know the process of hiring people. But I think as soon as you turn it into an official process, they're going to game the official process the other way. Something I've always attempted to do, which I think we've got better at as well, is every now and again, you're going to have a fallout. And sometimes you just can't help it because they see the world differently to you. But always try and pick up the phone and have a chat with them afterwards. Let the dust settle. 
you know, they're going to be upset with us for a month or two or vice versa. But pick up the phone, reach out. And uh, yeah, we've got a lot of people where there'd probably be a bit of animosity. When I say a lot, you know, if we've got 75 in the office, we've probably had 200 people come and go over the years. So maybe we've got a dozen who it would have been not very nice where, you know, you walk past them in the street and it's a bit of one of those. Mm -hmm. I've always tried to call call them up and, you know, say, hey, look, you know, really loved what you did for us, really grateful. If someone leaves, always say to them, really grateful for what you've done for us, you know. And I think that's a really good thing to do. And because even if they weren't good, even if they messed stuff up, inside you want to have a bit of a go at them. But if you can just say, look, I'm really grateful for what you did and, and focus on what they did well, I think that's a good thing to do. So let's have a look at some other of the mistakes we made. So you've put here, Mark, sometimes not dealing with problems head on. Yeah, I think, you know, the longer you put problems off, you know, dance around them or or maybe push them to one side, I think the longer it's A, going to take you to fix, B, the size of the problem often gets bigger, and C, the person gets fed up that you has brought you the problem or, you know, is encountering the problem. So it's good to deal with them as quickly as possible, head on, try and solve them and you know it takes another thing out of your mind and freeze gives you mind space back to yeah. focus on 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 growth and and the things that you want in your business what if you really don't want to do it like you really don't want to do if it if you really don't want to do it or you're not good at it then delegate it to somebody else who is good at fixing that problem okay what if you really want to do it sorry what if you really don't want to do it but you know you can't delegate it <laughs> then you've got to do it haven't yeah. you yeah you've just got to get on and do it grit your teeth and 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 sort of focus on put your mind somewhere else but just do it yeah yeah i mean i don't think we need to give you specific examples here because everybody knows if they've put off a problem it's got bigger and worse we all know that happens you got to eat that frog yeah first thing in the morning yes get in first thing you do you know before you've got into other stuff and other people coming towards you yeah. and before you can give yourself excuses yeah before yeah. you can even give yourself time to think about yes. the negatives of doing it you just do it yeah so that a couple of things i try and do is number one hold my breath and do it and don't let no time for any other thoughts or distractions and then number two i like to think how i'll feel afterwards so you know in the moment it might be painful you might get the butterflies you might be scared how will I feel when I've done this? And almost like have a little bit of a parallel universe, quick thought process. But the one thing for sure is the people who make the most money on the planet, the people who are the best entrepreneurs, the people who inspire the most people, the people who are valued the highest are the people who solve big problems first and fast. So I have a little bit of a pride around this now where if there's a big problem, I want to roll my sleeves and get in on it and deal with it. Because I know if I do that, I've got value because I know there's other people that can't do that. I, I quite enjoy finding who my critics, trolls and haters are and just calling them out. All right, how you doing? It's Rob. Hey, that's quite a funny thing to do. <laughs> um, and, you know, like as if you want to phone up your biggest hater. But I find when you've spoken to them, you get to know them, you understand them. You, often you're more alike than, than you think. They've just had something to happen to them, which they perceive you do, you're doing too. And um, yeah, it's, 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 all, it's a test of your ability to solve bigger problems. So if you practice it, you can get better at it. You know if you leave it, you know how that's going to eat at you. It's going to ruin your day, going to ruin your week. And um, yeah, we all make mistakes. People aren't expecting us not to make mistakes. They are expecting us to fix them, even if it's hard. All right, fine. So Mark, you in the past have sort of thought you've not spent enough money and maybe you've had a bit of diminishing law of return where you're overanalyzing. And then in other areas, maybe marketing or something, maybe you spent too much money. So how can you, what lessons, mistakes have you had when you've 
not spent enough money or spent too much money? Well, I mean, I generally steer away from marketing because that's your area anyway. But yeah, I'd, I wouldn't have grown quick enough and, and say, you know, bought enough buildings or moved on to the next strategy, you know, and, and spent enough making a, a building look really good because I wouldn't have seen the value in it. Yeah. I'd have seen the value in keeping it all really pared down and making more money that way. Yeah. So that definitely stinted growth. You know, spending money on clothes, spending money on cars, spending money on, you know, things that, you know, push you to, you know, push your brand and, and, and effectively put you in a different position in the marketplace. Yeah. I didn't necessarily relate that to increasing my income, yeah. you know, and, and others perceiving me in a different light. So, so, what you're, so what you're saying is really you're more of a hard fact based decision maker. Yeah. I.e. I, I won't to... spend if I can't see the return physically. Yeah. I want to see the evidence. And, yeah. uh, and as soon as I can see the evidence and it's justified, then um, then I'd do something. Yeah. Yeah. Would you say in the past you've gone to the nth degree too much where you've overanalyzed? Definitely. And you get it stuck in analysis paralysis. You spend a lot of your time on small things which don't create a good return. Got any specific examples? I'd spend a lot of time on money saving. So even within the business, you know, I'd be checking the bloody utilities and I'd be checking the, the phones and I'd the be checking the, the paper. Yeah, the, <laughs> yeah. the stationery. I still drag this, you know, get involved in the stationery negotiations and the yeah. printer every year. You know, we have this company come in and I don't know what we spend on printing, but it's tens and tens of thousands of pounds. They're here every um, day repairing those bloody things. Yeah. Aren't they? So, you know, there's a lot of cost in all that yeah. and there's an opportunity to reduce the cost. Yeah. So, yeah, there's um, all that. All that. Yeah. yeah. And would you say you've grown through that where you you won't be so anal Yeah, anymore? I tend to spend my time on bigger things now. Yeah. So I won't be quite so anal, but I won't spend the small stuff quite so much, yeah. or I'll delegate it to someone else who can deal with it. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I'm kind of the opposite to Mark, and I think if there's any tendency I had, it might be to under-research and to maybe overspend. But we set up Progressive, you know, literally just on the peak of the recession, and I think one good thing that taught us is we, it forced us to stay lean, didn't it? Because we saw all these other companies going bust. And I know if I'd have made some money, then I probably would have spent it a bit frivolously. But because the environment was so lean and all of our competitors had gone bust, I think it taught me not to spend too much money. But what I will sometimes do, and I'm admitting this, and you know, you'll probably know this, is sometimes I will spend money to alleviate pain. Yeah. And sometimes I could have done a bit more research and saved a bit more time. And it's a balance, isn't it? Because you want to leverage out. You don't want to spend 10 hours to save a fiver. But, it, it, you know, if you spend hundreds or thousands that you think perceive saving you time, but you could have done a bit of down and dirty research for two minutes and saved yourself a load of money. Mm. And I think you're good at that. And I'm not so good at that. But I think what I am good at is valuing my time. <clears throat> and I would rather spend to save time, which you probably come more towards now, haven't you? Yeah, I have. I find if you just understand a few key areas, obviously you, you sort of have to spend the time on it years before mm. to understand them. But if you understand a few key areas, you can save a lot of money with a small amount of time. So example would be booking flights, you know, always fly business class or first class. I know how to do it a year ahead. I know how to work the British Airways system. Doesn't take me loads of time to book my flights, but each time Gemma and I go away, I probably save five, 6,000 quid. Yeah. Good use of time. Mm. You know, same thing would be getting a car. I know what website to go on. Same thing would be, you know, getting a, a refurb done on the house. I know two or three guys that I could get to go in there, price, and, you know, I'll just get the top line numbers. Yeah. So you work out ways of sort of taking the helicopter view, getting some, you know, specific metrics back on the choices without spending too much time 
but you know increasing the leverage and and, and saving a lot of money based on you know the, the time spent yeah how did you feel when i picked up the phone and rang you and said um oh, i've crashed the ferrari <laughs> um well i mean it, i think the year before i'd had another one of my cars crashed by someone else and yeah, I remember and that. yeah, it was a bit M3 was it? Yeah, yeah, and they, I'm sure the the atom got done at a similar time yeah. as well. Um, by someone else. So yeah. yeah, by someone else. So um, yeah, I wasn't best pleased, <laughs> and uh, I remember buying it and thinking, well, this is just an outrageous amount of money on a car, and then yeah, but we didn't, of, we didn't, we got no, we haven't, no, we bought it for the right money, and mm. I've relaxed about it all now. But yeah. at the time, it was completely out of my level of understanding spending yeah. 160 170,000 yeah. pounds on a car well i think it helped that we didn't lose too much money on the first one we bought yeah With capital not yeah. maintenance yeah absolutely of course it helped and you know the, obviously i was i was quite bothered that you were all right rob which um as soon as i realized you were then obviously i switched into mode 2 yeah. um yeah. and when i came over and saw the car i just uh, yeah, I thought, I, well, you know this is this is um yeah this is going to be serious isn't yeah. it yeah I, um, I remember when yeah. um because we use this company called Peterborough Trim. Yeah. Because, you know, when you've got a load of cars, yeah. we're always bumping them, aren't we? We're yeah. both as bad as each other in that regard. And, yeah. you know, like they're all really low and you're always doing the wheels or the back or something like that. And we've got these guys, Peterborough Trim. And, you know, they, they can tidy everything up. And I remember when I phoned you, you said to me, just send it down Peterborough Trim. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, it wasn't quite that. Um, Is that what I said? Yeah, you did. Yeah, no, and um, yeah, it was what was yeah. the, was it about 97 grand something? What it, was was it? it was over 100 grand. Over 100 yeah. grand repair. I think bill. you said to me, well, it, it's just, I think there's some bodywork that needs doing and some other bits. Uh, I don't think it's going to be loads of money because it's not done the chassis. Yeah, yeah I remember you saying yeah. that. But yeah. it didn't do the chassis, did it? No, no, I think it, it was did. still over 100 it's, grand. It's still a Ferrari and um, yeah. Yeah, I remember you sat me down and I remember feeling, it reminded me of when my dad would sit School. me down and bollock, total bollocking. <laughs> yeah, the, the insurance premium didn't, weren't really that good afterwards, were they? I no, think it banished to, me from our... I think it went to 30 grand, didn't it? Yeah. From two grand to 30 grand. Yeah. 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 Well, they, well, they refused, didn't they? They just said no, and then sort of another one said 30 grand. Yeah. I think you stayed off it for a year, and then and then they sort of let you back on. Yeah. On, on for good behaviour, <laughs> yeah. On probation. <laughs> on probation, yeah. And, um, okay, if you've got any questions, if you are tuning in, like, sorry, I've, I've been told to look at this camera, hence I'm not giving you enough love. Uh, but if you've got any questions, we'll take a couple. If you can have a look at them, Harry, that'd be cool. All right, so I've, I've put a couple of other things I think we made a mistake on. I think, do you remember when we were at Queen Street Chambers and we probably did nick a couple too many staff out of one particular building? Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember. Um, and what's your view now on poaching staff? Well, it depends where they come from. I mean, you know, if you, if you find a good staff member working somewhere else and you experience them in your sort of daily work, then yeah. that's often a really good way to work yeah. out whether they're going to be good and good in your business. So... I think it's important to work out where you're sort of poaching them from. Obviously, probably not a good idea to keep upsetting the same place. Because, and, it, and it was about that far away over the road, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, because they're probably, uh, they may try and do the same to you yeah. and may, call, may, may cause some problems. But, um, you know, some businesses will, will poach stuff off you all, all the time. So I suppose yeah. all, all's fair in love and war. Yeah, I think the way I've looked at this now is how would people feel if uh, what I may do to them, they would do to me. So I'm quite happy to inspire people on a vision through a conversation that's not an interview. And if they choose to leave and then come to us, it's fine. But, you know, I, I, we were, I think in that instance, we were probably, there was like three staff in maybe six months. And I think maybe we were just a bit too, maybe cocky. 
about yeah. it. I don't know. And I remember we were walking down the street. You don't remember this, but I do. But the owner of this estate agent basically just shouted at us for 10 minutes and just said, you don't show no more, blah, 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 blah. And I think when we started, I was probably quite cheeky in business. And I quite liked it. You know, I've always been quite a cheeky person and I liked a bit of a risk and a bit of a gamble. And, you know, I like to do something that's a bit cheeky and disruptive. And I think when you've been in business a while, you learn that there's a cost to that. And if you can accept the cost, fine. But um, I now I've got children and things are different. And now I think more long term. And I think I know the cost of some things that are a bit cheeky and innovative and disruptive. And so now I would probably take a more long term view. Maybe that's age. I don't know. And were you the same? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I would definitely take a more long-term view yeah. on this sort of stuff, yeah. Okay. Um, so how do you view mistakes? Because really, you know, no one's perfect and no one's not going to make any, but you don't want to make big ones and completely implode your business. So what's your view conceptually on mistakes in business specifically? You know, a mistake isn't really a mistake if you don't make it again. So, you know, it's just a, a learning, something that, you know, you, you haven't experienced before. You go into it, you make the mistake, you don't do the same thing again, you remember it, you learn from it. I think, it, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you you're stronger yeah. uh, and moves you forward. Mm. So I think you've got to make a load of mistakes in business and in investing and in buying houses. Just that's why you start small. That's yeah. why slow and silly wins the race and you build organically. Yeah. You get to make the mistakes on a small scale. Yeah. And then, you know, as you scale up and do bigger stuff, you're making less yeah. and less mistakes and therefore you should have a good business or a good investment. I think I'd add to that that you want to de-risk as much as you can the mistakes so that if you made it, it wouldn't damage you. But you probably need to push yourself outside your comfort zone enough so that you're in a new arena learning new things where you're naturally going to make some. So, you know, for example, if I was launching a product, I'd test it first on a small audience or I might do polls in communities to work out what the best title, you know, what the best kind of concept for the product is first. I might get feedback. I might do a version one before we do a version two, before we do a version three. So I think it's a balance between de-risking so that the mistake, you've got to make sure that mistake you make won't kill you, but giving yourself enough stretch so that making small ones means you can keep learning. So really what you probably want to do is make lots of little safe mistakes. That being said, a lot of people are making mistakes on their own, feeling their way in business. And it's quite, it's, you know, it's quite a thing in a lot of thought processes or fraternities of people to say, well, you know, there's no rule book to business. There's no rule book to being a parent. You just got to get out there and do it and make the mistakes. But, you know, buying a property, for example, it's a big thing. And you can make a big mistake and it can make you go bust. So getting mentors, reading books, listening to books, listening to podcasts, getting good friends who are also in business and done what you've done and going out for dinner with them and creating a social environment where there are a lot of people in your space doing what you do. Getting vicarious mistakes, I think, is the best way to, to learn, which is what's the problem I want to solve? Who's already solved it? Go to them, ask them how they solved it, follow what they do. You probably won't make 80% of the mistakes. You'll still make some because you'll put your own uniqueness on it because, you know, we mentor people a lot, don't we? And, you know, like some people do not always listen no. to the advice. And I would have been like that if someone had mentored me 10 years ago and had said, Rob, don't grow too fast. I, even if I paid him money, I'd have completely ignored that and gone, oh, let's grow crazy. You know, we can be different. So it's a balance, isn't it, between listening to people, learning from them, getting your ego out the way so you follow their system, but you're naturally going to make a few. If you de-risk them, I think you're fine. All right, great. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. And see you soon.